Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hello, hello. I'm so happy you're here today. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. We have a very exciting guest for you who is speaking to something that both Russell and I are incredibly committed to and passionate about. We've both been vegetarians for over 20 years, but this month we've taken on a new challenge for ourselves. Not entirely new. There has been points in my life where I have been vegan but not regularly as of late. However, this month for January, we are participating in Veganuary and recommitting to a fully plant-based diet, uh, letting go of that dairy, that cheese that I tend to love so much, and focusing on plants only. And that's what our guest today is here to talk about. I'm thrilled to introduce you to Stuart Waldner. Stuart is the author of a book called Escape the Matrix, and he didn't set out to be an activist. He became vegetarian or vegan, strictly eating a plant-based diet in 2008, and he started to feel so much better that it led him to begin to research the environmental effects and the healing effects of a plant-based diet. He began to understand the statistical connections between our choices around food and the environmental crisis that we are facing. Stuart felt called to wake people up, which is why he wrote his book, Escape the Matrix, where he chronicles his eye-opening battle against climate change and exposes the real reason why vegetables are more expensive than meat. And it's probably not what you think. We might not like the truth, but the cost of staying ignorant is much too high. So today we're inviting Stuart Waldner to come on and share what he's learned, his journey, and some of the information found in his new book, Escape the Matrix. I know you're just going to love this episode, and I can't wait to get into it. So let's get started. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with my co-host, Russell Case, who insists on being introduced. I don't, I mean, people aren't going to know who I am unless you do, so... (laughs) I think that's real. I think that's key to how this whole thing should work. We have a, a wonderful guest on today. Yeah. Uh, surprisingly, just told us that uh, he he knew one of our previous guests, Babita, from pop up pop up uh, events in Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah, and they have something in common too. The veganism. Yeah, the plant based <laughs> veganism. <laughs> right. Well, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for I, I, well, I <laughs> thought I'd say hi first, but yeah, Stuart, do you go by Stu, Stewie, Mr. Waldner? Stuart is fine. <laughs> Stuart is fine. Stuart Waldner, our guest today, is an environmental food activist and author of Escape the Meat Tricks. Uh, today, Stuart is going to talk about his battle against climate change, the real reason veggies are more expensive than a burger and the environmental impact and effects of the meat and eating industry on the planet. I wonder, um, Mr. 
Mr. Waldner, if you could tell Stuart. us, <laughs> Stuart, if you could tell us, what do you mean by escaping the matrix? What is that? What is that? How did you come up with that title? Okay, well, I'm using the uh, world in the Matrix movies as a metaphor for our world. So mm -hmm. in the Matrix movies, artificial intelligence has taken over the planet and is using humans as an energy source. And I say our world is a lot like that because human beings have taken over this planet. I mean, there's 8 billion of us here now, and we're using farmed animals as our energy source. So I'm saying that, you know, we're living in the Matrix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just in the same way that the the machines were we're living off humans. of the the humans as a battery source for themselves. Yes. We're now doing the mm -hmm. same thing. We've created a farming industry where where animals are now subject to uh, our use of them. Yeah, we're just treating animals not as uh, living creatures, but as food commodities, just to serve mm -hmm. serve us as kind of like the overlords or the AI in mm -hmm. in the matrix. And, um, you know, I was born into the matrix and I think most of us, you know, in the United States and, and many other parts of the world were born into the matrix. And, you know, we were taught to eat animal based foods at a very early age by our parents and their parents learned it from their parents. And so this is a tradition that gets passed on from one generation to the next. And it's not a, a conscious choice that any of us have really made. I, I don't know uh, anybody who woke up one day and said, you know, I want to eat an animal based, you know, food. It's just something <laughs> that we were taught to do. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think it becomes just seems to me that because it's something that we were indoctrinated into, which I say in my book, mm -hmm. it seems like it's natural, necessary and nutritious. When mm -hmm. the science that I reveal in my book says, you know, eating animal based foods is none of those things. Yeah. Well, you're in the right, you're with the right audience because <laughs> we were vegetarian before being vegetarian was a thing, really. Before it was <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. you could only find like soy milk at the one health food store in the city if of. Could, if you lived in a city with a health food store. Yeah. Where you're yeah. making your when own almond milk. Uh -huh. In the 90s, in, <laughs> in not Calgary, that long ago. In Calgary, you'd be lucky to find a health food store. It's true. But I have made my own soy milk, and it does need mm -hmm. sugar for those of yeah. you at home, which I discovered. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested in the, there was a there was a, a, a thing you mentioned in your bio that really kind of uh, tipped me off. And I'm sorry to inter interrupt mm -hmm. you, Harmony. I think you probably had something. But um, you talked about how you grew up expecting people to get sick and you saw everyone, everybody as they were aging, getting sick. And it reminded me of a yoga teacher that we knew. What yeah, was his, what's David his name? Williams. David Williams yeah. would say growing up mm -hmm. in North Carolina that he didn't see people getting, growing up older and wiser. People just yeah. grew up older and sicker. Mm -hmm. And you were sort of looking at your own life and thinking, well, this is what I, yeah, what I would expect for myself. I grew up and, mm -hmm. and, you know, like my grandparents, I'm going to start smoking as soon as I can and, <laughs> and eat meat. And my grandmother would have a beer for breakfast and start on her day. And I yeah. wonder if she, and yeah, she uh, got emphysema and all those other, other diseases. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about that experience yourself and, and mm -hmm. growing up in Kentucky and, and what you thought and, and expected for yourself. 
Yes, well, Kentucky is my home. I've I've lived here my whole life, and that's where my family and friends are. And it's a beautiful state. Um, I live in the city of Lexington, which is kind of the central part of Kentucky, known as the Bluegrass re Region. And like I said, it's beautiful. The people are wonderful, but we have a lot of unhealthy people in the state uh, as a whole. In fact, you know, nationally, we rank 48th in healthy behaviors and 47th in health outcomes. So I guess we're doing a little bit better on the output than the input. But um, really, there's no other state. Uh, there's only one other state, actually, that has more people with chronic health, multiple chronic health conditions than Kentucky. So and that's West Virginia, our neighbor. So, yeah, I grew up uh, seeing a lot of people in my community who were struggling with chronic conditions like um, obesity, diabetes, uh, hypertension, uh, cardiovascular disease, and uh, various cancers due to lifestyle. And I really thought that it was inevitable, you know, that we would all come down with some kind of illness, some kind of chronic condition, and that the best we could hope for was to try to manage it with, you know, pills, shots, and surgeries. And so, uh, I was really concerned about that. I didn't want to become a statistic in, in my own state. And at the age of 23, I made a huge lifestyle uh, shift. And that's when I gave up eating meat. And that was in 1985. And mm. I did that because the this medical science coming out at that time said, you know, the, the saturated fats found in animal-based foods and in red meat in particular uh, were a major contributor to heart disease, which is our number one killer, not only in, in Kentucky, but in, in the nation. So I figured, you know, that's the science. Uh, I'm going to give up eating meat. And that's what I decided to do in 1985. And, um, you know, since that whole time, I've enjoyed just incredible health. Uh, I think uh, Benjamin Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think giving up meat was the, the ounce of prevention I needed uh, so that I wouldn't need a cure. Uh, I've been able mm -hmm. to avoid all these chronic conditions that so many people in my state uh, suffer with. And, um, you know, it's because uh, of the food that we eat. It's not healthy for us. And it leads to uh, chronic inflammation, which leads to a host of, of chronic illnesses. So I think the root of all of our chronic illnesses, it starts with our diet. And um, that's what I was able to change. And that's why I've enjoyed such good health. And I know if I can do it, other people can do it too. You know, uh, it's best to make the change before you're diagnosed with a, a chronic condition. But even if you have a chronic condition today, the science that I show in my book says, you know, you can stabilize or reverse that chronic condition through a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle. So that's the information I want to share with people. It's so powerful. Yeah, for I sure. I remember in, in 93, my first yoga teacher brought a, a video um, into class and I was, mm -hmm. I was just stunned that you know what he decided to show us because I thought it was going to be another like video of Richard Freeman or, or David Swenson <laughs> and what it was instead was an autopsy and it was someone mm. who had died of a heart attack and I remember being 18 and he pulled out like a uh, an eight inch thick mm. piece of string cheese out of the guy's mm. aorta and I oh, thought yeah. oh I I do like a piece of string cheese oh. and um <laughs> And I'd grown up on it, you know, because it's easy to eat packaged meals like that. And I just remember being so revolted at the time 
that I, I mm. went cold turkey vegan for a good long time. Um, nice. Honestly, until I went to India, which was had a mm. negative impact on my diet. <laughs> Well, it is interesting though, isn't it? I mean, India, you know, wow. it's easy to be vegetarian and eat pure veg, but considering um, <laughs> the dairy and the cows are so holy and auspicious mm-hmm. that it's pretty difficult to avoid milk. Yeah, our teacher was telling us to drink one liter of milk per day and all of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but want- I want to say something, oh, yeah, like to your, to your point, um, mm-hmm the point about, uh, you know, kids and like no one grows up, you know, thinking, oh yeah, I need to eat, eat animal protein to be healthy. Um, you know, my son, I was vegetarian when I had my son and I never really like, you know, pushed any kind of diet on him in particular, but he just Mm -hmm. never grew up eating meat. And the few times he was offered it, he wasn't really into it. You know, he mm-hmm. would like kind of like take a bite of he went to a birthday party once and I didn't say, oh, he can't eat that or anything. So he'd eat like a, I think mm-hmm. it was like a ham and cheese sandwich or something. And he like took one bite and then he like gave it to me like, uh, can you do something with this? <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And nice. then like when he was like a little bit older, um, he kind of made the association between um you know, the meat products and then the animals, you know? So instead of saying, Mm -hmm. oh, that's ham, I'd say, oh, that's a pig. (laughs) Or instead of beef, I'd say that's a cow. Yeah. And so because he had that association with the Mm -hmm. animals, then he was like really against it, really, really against it. (laughs) And he became, I used to call him my my militant vegan because he was, he was like violently opposed yeah. to eating animals. He, he wouldn't even eat the fake meat or the, yeah, for a that, long I, time that I cooked in the house because he would look at it. It's like, that's not right. Yeah. It's like, I'm cooking at it because it's familiar, you know? <laughs> That's great uh, about your son. I talk about some uh, studies in my book that Mm -hmm. were done with uh, children in the United States, ages four to eight. And the study determined that, you know, children are unsuspecting meat eaters, which goes back to what I said is how we're indoctrinated into eating animals without realizing we're doing it. And Mm -hmm. 84% of the children surveyed said it was wrong to eat a cow. 79% said it was wrong to eat a pig. Uh, Mm -hmm. 41% said bacon came from plants. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. The study showed that, you know, children are not aware of where the food on their plate Mm -hmm. comes from. And so they were looking at why is this? And part of it is, you know, parents have their own uh, uneasy feelings about uh, eating animals. You know, they're trying to Mm -hmm. teach the children to, to love and care for animals, but then they're feeding them other animal parts, you know, on their plates. And this is known Mm -hmm. as the omnivores dilemma or the meat Mm -hmm. paradox. It's this conflict that, that many meat eaters have because, you know, most people believe that it's wrong to do unnecessary harm to animals. Right. Yeah. Three times a day, they're engaged in activities that create the, you know, horrendous harm for animals. Yeah. And so, you know, this conflict operates, you know, in the background, it's like um, subconsciously, it's there all the time. Mm-hmm. 
And then yeah. when certain things happen and it becomes uh, comes to the uh, conscious mind, then we have a lot of dissonance. And the term actually mm-hmm. psychologists use is cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. So people who eat uh, animal-based foods become very agitated uh, being around someone who doesn't. So there were some studies mm-hmm. done at Bellarmine University, which is in Louisville, Kentucky, just near where I live. And it showed that, you know, meat eaters become agitated just merely by being in the presence of a person who's plant-based, you know, and us poor plant-based eaters, we don't have to do anything. (laughs) We're we're just doing our own thing. Um, And all of a sudden we're getting all this hate from people. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it's horrific. Yeah. I think it's so powerful though. Like a book like yours can really, I mean, if it reaches someone at the right time, it can really shift things. Cause I remember that's, really what shifted. I was, you know, when I first became vegetarian and I was vegan for a while at that time too, I was like 15 years old and I had read um, Tom Robbins book, A Diet for a Small America. For a New America. A New America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really, he has Diet for a Small Planet and Diet for a New America. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It really like... (laughs) impacted me um mm-hmm. into yeah, yeah into realizing book. the environmental uh implications as well mm-hmm. as you know what's really going on someone who reviewed my book and i'm just brag on my book <laughs> for a minute Please. said that they they <laughs> thought in reading my book they said my book was an updated version of diet for a new america that had all mm. the latest yeah. science in it so that was like, yeah. oh my gosh, that was such praise. Uh, yeah. I was thrilled to hear that. And that was what I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, provide the science because I'm all about helping people make informed decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the science that I talk about in my book will help people make you know better choices uh, for themselves and for their families and for the planet mm-hmm. and for the animals, You know, starting with the food on their plates. And you know, yeah. mainstream media doesn't really talk about the connection between what we're eating and the environmental impacts and climate change impacts. Our mainstream media is focused primarily on, you know, fossil fuel industry while ignoring the implications of, uh, of mm-hmm. uh, the food that we're producing. <clears throat> in fact, I got a, a survey came across in my email today from New York Times. They had a survey today and they, it was all about, you know, what actions do Americans take to reduce their carbon footprint and how effective are they? And so it was just Mm -hmm. a little quiz you could take, maybe had 15 questions and, and you could say whether, you know, uh, recycling was, had a high impact on lowering your carbon footprint, a medium impact or a low impact. And so you'd answer these questions and they'd give you the answer. Well, the last question was uh, veganism. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, I knew the answer. You knew the answer. It is like yeah. the single mm-hmm. most important thing you can do to lower your carbon yeah. footprint. So I said, it's high. Only 6% of the people who took the survey answered that question correctly. Wow. And, Absolutely. you know, that's why I wrote my book. You know what I mean? Yeah. People aren't making the connection. And, uh, you know, only 6% of the people answered that question correctly. That says we have a, wow. a lot of work to do, a lot, a lot of yeah. work to do ahead of us to connect the dots. And, but the dots are there and the science is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my book is not my opinion. It's, it's the science. And mm-hmm. I think that's why 
Um, you know, I came out in October, October 11th. And so far, every review of my book on Amazon, BookBuddy, mm -hmm. NetGalley, every review has been five stars. So yeah. Because this awesome. isn't me just spouting off my opinions. This is me showing <laughs> the science behind yeah. my position, which is advocating yeah. for a plant-based lifestyle to help reduce needless suffering, needless human suffering, animal suffering, yeah. and and the suffering of the the uh, our planet. You know, we are destroying this planet in the name of meat, and um, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we were taught this, yeah. and so. That's why on my book, you know, you can see I have a hand offering the reader the red pill, like Neo offered, mm. yeah. um, no, like Morpheus offered Neo in the Matrix movies. And that's just mm. to symbolize that we have a choice. You know, we mm -hmm. don't think we have this choice because we don't see outside the Matrix. We think that we need meat and animal-based foods for calcium and for protein. And we're conditioned yeah. to think that the Matrix has a monopoly on these ingredients when, when it doesn't. I mean, all the nutrients we need to be healthy at any stage of life can be found in plants. And that's according to the United States Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So, again, that's not me saying it. That's, that's the science. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. I'm, we watched a, a documentary with Arnold Schwarzenegger produced that was that was really nice um, on the vegan based athlete and and the kind of mm -hmm. propaganda that he had been fed about that. And it was it was it was right. amazing to think about how he had been uh, conditioned to think that he needed meat to build muscle. And it, mm -hmm. it reminded me of when I first started being a vegan when I was 18, 19. And, and as I was joking before, it, it really made every single person I was around mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And every single meal, inevitably someone would be uh, hysterical about my decision. <laughs> And it was, uh, yeah. But but I remember someone wow. saying to me like, "Well, how are you going to get strong if you're not eating meat?" And I and I mm -hmm. just remember looking at them and thinking like, "Have you never seen a bull, or right. uh, a rhinoceros, or an elephant <laughs> mm -hmm. in your damn life?" And I'm like, yeah. "These are these they build enormous muscle masses on an entirely mm -hmm. vegan diet and." Um, why do we think the cows get their muscles? You know, they're yeah, eating plants. Exactly. You know? So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's this um, mentality that uh, we are force fed. And that's why I think, you know, choosing the red pill is freeing ourselves from this, you know, false narrative that we've been force fed since birth that, you know, we mm -hmm. need animal based foods and that eating right. them is, like I said, natural, necessary, and nutritious. And it just, um, the reason it freaks people out and it doesn't, you know, register with them is because the science is at odds with the marketing of these products. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, the Matrix is masterful at marketing their products to us. And so some of the most effective media campaigns in my lifetime have been from the meat and dairy industries. You know, beef, it's what's for dinner. Got milk, right. uh, milk, mm -hmm. it does a body good. Uh, the incredible edible egg pork, the other white meat. You know, these are yeah. some of the most effective ad campaigns that, that have yeah. come out in generations. And it mm -hmm. just gets us, it's immense. It's the message that it's immense in our minds is that we need these products. And in fact, it's been highly effective. 
There's something even more sinister yeah. going on that I think, which is the lobby groups and the government um, subsidizing of meat and dairy products. Right. Because if you actually had to pay what it costs to raise a cow, keep a cow, mm -hmm. kill a cow, and all of the resources that go into the feeding the cow and getting like all of it, mm -hmm. and it wasn't subsidized, there'd be a lot less people eating meat because it would be unaffordable. Exactly. That uh, and I talk about that in so my like, blog. Like, yeah, yeah, that's crazy when you start think realizing that yeah. the government itself is subsidizing these industries to get you to eat more of it because of the powerful lobby right. groups involved. And so, as a taxpayer, mm -hmm. all of your money is going to these group to the meat and dairy industry, even if you don't yeah, that's want why it I call to. It the, that's why I talk in my book about you know. Um, Eisenhower warned the country in 1961 about the military industrial complex. Well, now we're living mm. under uh, the meat industrial complex <laughs> and it's just as damaging as the military. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, killing all of us. Um, you know, in 2019, our U S government gave the beef industry $9 billion in direct and indirect payments. So that's, like you said, it's our taxpayer money going directly as a handout to mm -hmm. cattle ranchers to create their products so that we can have a $4 hamburger. And so uh, what I talk about in my book is that, you know, we need to change how we are subsidizing food in this country. Uh, for every dollar that a lentil grower receives from the government, a cattle rancher receives $480. Holy. I mean, that's that's crazy. <laughs> so that's huge. we need to, to, to that point. I think it's interesting. We were um, we were watching this. I think it was really bad TV. I can't quite remember the name <laughs> of it at the off the top of my head, but it was like uh, Golden Stone or Yellowstone. Yellowstone. <laughs> and in that in mm. that show, I saw I kept seeing all of these subtle. Mm. Uh, propaganda techniques mm -hmm. to undermine uh, liberal vegetarian uh, uh, choices. And I, mm -hmm. I kept seeing it over and over again. I kept seeing the writers kind of trying to, to um, uh, legitimize. legitimize the cattle industry. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is yes. really interesting. Like they feel like it's, it's necessary to make sure that they legitimize their choices. And, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be more interesting as a story. I think if they, if they talked about the real, the, you know, the real economics behind what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the matrix, you know, it have, I don't know. I don't talk about this in my book, but I've thought about, you know, times in my life when I've been in a relationship with someone who uh, was insecure and mm. they didn't value what they brought to the relationship. And so they tried to manipulate me into staying in the relationship or something. So to me, it's kind of like mm. what the meat industry does. You know, <laughs> it, it knows that we don't need it. So it goes out of its way to try to convince us that, oh, we need it. Uh, we're going to mm -hmm. suffer without it. And a lot of people think, um, yeah, you can be you can go vegan for a year or two but you're going to eventually wreck your health and you're going to have to go back to eating animal-based foods. That's kind of the mentality we heard have. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the exact opposite. You know, the, the science that I show in my book, uh, it says that the exact opposite happens when we eat a healthy whole foods, plant-based uh, mm -hmm. diet, 
then we restore our body's health and we, we increase our lifespan. We reduce inflammation in our bodies. We avoid so many chronic diseases and we have more time with our family and friends. Um, but that's, that is, goes against the narrative of the meat and dairy industry. Mm-hmm. I'm eager to talk more about um, evolution. I, I just wonder, before we, mm-hmm. we mention that, I wonder if you could talk more about, um, say, the impact on, on the environment. Because I'm, I have this, this, um, uh, this image in my head that, uh, of the Amazon rainforest and how you know, people talked about uh, a couple years ago about how you know, we could really fight climate change if we just maintained the Amazon rainforest. But perhaps mm-hmm. people don't understand that like the major reason the Amazon rainforest is being raised to the ground is to create room for cattle. And mm-hmm. th- that cattle industry is actually what's what's changing the entire shape right. of, of, of that incredibly important natural resource. Yeah, that's that's right. It's either to uh, have land for the animals themselves or to grow crops for the animals. And right. that's what is so um, important for us to uh, realize is that, you know, all these animals require an enormous amount of food and water. And, mm-hmm. you know, 70% of the grain that we feed to livestock, um, no, 70% of the grain that we grow in the United States, we feed to livestock. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. if we, instead, if we grew uh crops for human rather than animal consumption uh, on the same amount of land, we could feed an additional 1 billion people in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's how much, uh, how much more food that we could grow for people. And Mm -hmm. uh, globally, if we didn't grow crops for, for livestock, but grew crops for human consumption, we could feed an additional 4 billion people. So this is, Uh, So important because um, we just had the 8 billionth person born on the planet uh, just recently, and we're expected to reach uh, close to 10 billion people on the planet by the year 2050. (laughs) And so one of the reasons why um, we keep having to to go into rich biospheres like the rainforest and elsewhere, uh, uh, we're cutting it down, clear cutting it, is so we can grow crops. Mm -hmm for the meat that, mm-hmm. um, you know, we really don't, don't need and we'll be better off not having, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, there's so much money to be made. Uh, and like I said, and we talked about it earlier, the government is, uh, colluding with the meat and dairy industry. You know, the meat and dairy industry generated $1.2 trillion of economic activity in the United States in 2020. That's 6% wow. of our GDP. So, there's, there's a lot of um, people who want to maintain the status quo, and there's a lot of vested mm-hmm. interests. There's a lot of money to be made in maintaining the status quo. But unfortunately, you know, the status quo is the opposite of the red pill. It's the blue pill. And if we choose mm-hmm. the blue pill, we're just going to get more of what we're seeing in the headlines already. You know, we're seeing, you know, uh, climate change. Uh, emerging infectious diseases. We're seeing mass extinction mm-hmm. rates, environmental degradation, you know, huge biodiversity losses, and our health is just declining. And we're going to mm-hmm. just get more and more of that if we choose the blue pill. But we yeah. have an option and we can choose the red pill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
there's uh, it reminds me of a of another um to, to follow up on what you were saying it reminds me of another um episode that we saw in where they were um uh liberal activists were being spoken to by the patriarch in, <laughs> in, in Yellowstone. Yellowstone about um the amazing thing today. was the <laughs> the speciesism that was prevalent mm -hmm. in the exchange and that's something that you mentioned as well um about speciesism is that you don't you don't care about the lives of these animals look at all of the of the animals that are killed when you know crops when the the soil is turned and I thought it was just such an incredible hypocrisy mm. because they would never like the people in this on this ranch would never eat a dog. They never eat a cat. Mm -hmm. They never eat a horse because they have this speciesism uh, ingrained in themselves. And that always sort of seemed to. As my yoga practice evolved over time, that always seemed to mm -hmm. to stick out to me is like, well, you know, what do you care about? You know whether or not, um, say, people and young men in Korea eat eat dogs, uh, as they as they sometimes do when they're uh, coming of age because they're going to the into the army. It's a kind of tradition, and mm. it's another kind of um, way to uh, another kind of racial bigotry against, uh, say, Asian people that that do that. But that in itself is a hypocrisy, mm. and I, I wonder mm -hmm. if you could talk more about that kind of speciesism because you had mentioned that. Yeah. So I, I talk about it in my book and some studies that show that, you know, I alluded to the study about the children who were, you know, ages four to eight, not knowing where food came, comes from. And, you know, the reason that children at that age say it's wrong to eat a cow or a pig is they view all animals as being pet-like. You know, they see mm -hmm. uh, yeah. a chicken as being like a dog or a cat um, mm -hmm. because they, they see that, that that animal has a life, it has value, uh, and <laughs> they know that it, you know, they, they get affection, can get affection from it or can give affection to it. So it's, it's about empathy, I think, at that age. And I yeah. think that's something that we're all um, almost all of us are born with this natural gift of, of empathy for all living creatures. Mm -hmm. But and sadly, as we age, about the time that we become uh, uh, pre-adolescent, I'd say, is what the science says, um, is that we start putting animals into categories. And that's when we do the mental gymnastics and acrobatics <laughs> that are required to make that mm -hmm. shift from that all animals are being like our pets to, mm -hmm. okay, these animals are our pets and these are not. And, and that's mm -hmm. uh, something that happens because of, of culture. It's a culturally um, uh, medicated or predicated idea. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. you said, in other parts of the world, people, uh, you know, their culture is different and they might eat dogs or horses where we don't <laughs> in our, in our culture. So mm -hmm. I say in my book, you know, if you're uneasy with the idea of, of eating your dog, you really should think about that because this line between, um, you know, what's a, an edible food or animal to a pet is it's just an arbitrary line that's been mm -hmm. predetermined by the culture that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great book, speaking of books, called When Elephants Weep that talk a lot about the inner emotions mm -hmm. and the emotional aspect of all animals. And so 
That was also another like influential book along my journey looking Mm -hmm. at, um, you know, because some people say, well, they don't have feelings or they don't, they don't know what's going on. But I think if you actually do the research like you've done, you can see like, Mm -hmm. um, it's a rich emotional tapestry. Yeah. There's a rich emotional tapestry there. Exactly. And mothers who give birth to calves, like have an emotional connection to them they're not just like uh oh, mm-hmm. i don't give they're a not shit. indifferent to their, <laughs> to their offspring you know exactly yeah. and fortunately there's been um you know there are scientists now doing studies on the lives of farmed animals and i talk about some of these studies in my book and uh like you said russell uh their lives are much richer and more complex than we ever imagined. And Mm -hmm. even under the incredible stress of factory farming, you know, animals have family, friends, they play, they, they still, you know, have capacities for all these emotions and and a rich experience in life, even under the stresses that they're going through. So I talk about my book, one of the studies, you know, it's, and I think it's really well known now that, you know, uh, there are people who have pigs as pets yeah. and, yeah. you know, a, a pig can do anything that a dog can do. You know, a pig can yeah. fetch a Frisbee. They're easily housebroken. <laughs> yeah. They, mm-hmm. you know, you can train a pig to do just about anything that a dog can yeah. do. And it's been scientifically proven. Um, and that blows my mind because, you know, when you think about dogs, we have selectively bred dogs for 10 or 11,000 years to be, quote, man's best friend, you know, so we have this, you know, close relationship with dogs. Um, And I have two dogs, I love my dogs, and they (laughs) they really make my life so much richer. But we have uh, bred pigs only, selectively bred pigs only to become food. And it makes me wonder, you know, how much more companion like could a pig be if we had invested, you know, the last 10,000 years of breeding them to be our companions, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, um, but we don't think of pigs in this way. And this is yeah. uh, because of speciesism. Like I said, we don't yeah. uh, think That's of right. farmed I'm, animals as anything other than food commodities. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that when you were talking about <laughs> about the farmed animals having a rich emotional life. I was thinking about all those pets that are pigs out there thinking, oh, let's talk about the pigs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I worked on a, a pig farm in uh, in South Korea and um, it was a it was a harrowing experience that I was I was not mm-hmm. prepared for. Uh, for yeah. one, because uh, the animals responded so uh, uh, desperately to the presence of death. And if, and, and if you, if you had a dead pig in a pen, the other animals knew immediately and they were n- not comfortable being around yeah. it. And, you know, I remember, you know, my job was at one point was to drag the dead animals away from, from the live ones. And they were just really, you know, it was, as we were talking about this rich emotional mm-hmm. landscape, the other thing I was not prepared for with pigs is the the very human-like cry they make oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, when they're hurt or mm-hmm. um, when they're being lined up for slaughter, it um, <clears throat> like it sounds it sounds like a you know a concentration camp of, of human yeah. squealing and human screaming, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know how um, an industry 
could could can like the first pig farmer how the first pig farmer maintained his sense of his um sense lack of lack of empathy lack of empathy <laughs> is um is beside mm-hmm. i i just can't understand it yeah it's yeah. incredible um, i'm sorry you um mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm sorry you you had that experience you know mm. that must have been really really hard well yeah it's it's um i i have not had uh good experiences with um these you know hunting and farming and uh <laughs> fishing like on the whole growing up i was i just i grew up about i grew up northwest of you in illinois and i on the mm-hmm. whole every time someone took me to to do one of these activities like fishing for example and watching a fish suffocate to death on a boat my mouth just dropped open like like at my dad like see we mm-hmm. have a fish now it's like that fish is suffocating <laughs> to death you have to hit mm-hmm. it on the head with the hammer and like <laughs> oh yeah. man i opened one of my chapters in my book i think the chapter on tradition uh mm-hmm. with a story similar to that where my father took me and my brother on our first fishing trip mm-hmm. and you know just how horrific it was for me you know mm-hmm. i had been looking forward to it all week but then you know the experience of it i was not prepared at all for it yeah and i've never gone fishing since my dad never never asked me <laughs> if i wanted to go fishing again um mm-hmm. you know and unfortunately my dad's you know no longer alive so i can't talk to him about how that experience was for him and i kind of imagine you know because he fished i've seen pictures of him fishing um you know, earlier in his life. And then I think you probably would have liked to have passed that tradition on to me and my brother. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't happen. I don't, I don't think my brother fishes either. Um, and I just wonder if that was a disappointment for him because, mm. yeah. you know, it's something that he learned, I'm sure from his father. And that's how mm-hmm. we normalize uh, behaviors that would otherwise seem barbaric. You know, mm-hmm. we normalize right. them because we call them traditions and yeah. we teach young children that it's acceptable to, uh, to, to do what you just said, you know, just leave a fish yeah. on the deck of a boat to suffocate and die. Um, and we normalize that. And then that's how, yeah. you know, it just continues. I was just going to say, just because something has been a tradition isn't a good reason to continue it. You know, there's a, a tradition, mm-hmm. I mean, that we're still living with today. Women make 79 cents on the dollar to a man <laughs> in, in the United States. Yeah. You know, is that a tradition we want to keep continuing? I don't want to continue that. <laughs> I'm no. sure most, um, most if not all women would like to d- discontinue that tradition. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've been trying to for a while. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if you could, if you could talk about this quote that we have here. Um, a plant-based person saves the life of one animal every day. And I'd never, I've never seen that sentence before, but as I read it, I understood the truth of it, but it is, a, I wonder if you could speak to it. Cause it's such a, a wonderful kind of like, almost like a Mr. Rogers statement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it is interesting because I think it can feel a little bit like, I mean, daunting. yeah. And also, I mean, you know, I think my parents, 
you know, we've ha- we've had an ongoing conversation about vegetarianism, veganism, you know, the mm-hmm. harm of eating a plant-based diet ongoing for many, many years. Um, my mother had breast cancer in 2005 and, you know, mm. I had her read the Colin T. Campbell book, uh, the China study. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there was, I mean, there's been a lot of different phases, but I think when it comes down to it, there's kind of two things that go on. One is just not wanting to know, like it's too gruesome. It's too terrible Mm -hmm. to see, right. To like watch that documentary about (laughs) factory farms and like, it's just too gruesome. It's too terrible. Right. They'd rather be blind to it or. Mm -hmm. Ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Yeah. Or also it feels uh, like even if you don't do it, nothing's going to change. Right. It feels too immense, too big Mm -hmm. to really like, well, what my actions aren't going to stop anything. Right. And so there's kind of those two things I think that go on. and, Mm -hmm. And this quote sort of, I think, is like a little beacon of hope in the girl world. Yeah. I, I was um, being interviewed by someone and, and we talked about, uh, and she she taught me a term I didn't know, but that's called uh, weaponized hopelessness. And that <sighs> is uh, where we, right. we give up hope because we think there's nothing that any one person can do. Mm-hmm. And I think the matrix exploits that. They want us to think that, um, you know, your your choices of the food on your plate aren't really making a difference. How can one person make a difference. And so when I ran across this poster, I was like, you know, at first I thought, no, I can't be, you know, because the poster said, you know, a plant-based person saves 1,100 gallons of water, 45 pounds of grain, 35 square feet of forest, 20 uh, pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent, and the life of one animal every day. When I saw that, I was like, no way, you know, I can't be, you know, where is this information coming from? And, and actually, right. it was, it, I traced it down and it, it comes from, you know, basically uh, government sources. It was uh, the material was used in a uh, powerful documentary called Cowspiracy. So, oh, yeah, uh, we saw that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when when people see that poster or see that graph graphic in my book, I hope, you know, it'll just sink in that, you know, this, this is really powerful. And, you know, the, the entrenched um, uh, powers that be don't want us as individuals to think that we have the power to make this change happen. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the only way it can happen, you know, is is from us individually, because uh, we change the world, I think, one with one with one with one, you know, one person at Mm -hmm. a time. And the, the, like I said, the government and the matrix are um, working together. There's, they're making so much money uh, that, you know, this change to uh, a plant-based lifestyle isn't going to come from above. It, it has to start from below with each of us individual. Yeah. And it's so powerful because, you know, we, we would save so many resources and so much needed suffering by, by becoming plant-based. Um mm-hmm. You know, and one of the reasons why it's so important for climate change is that uh, the animals that we uh, use for livestock, they, uh, especially ruminant animals, that's uh, cows, sheep, goats, and lambs, they produce methane. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if all the meat and dairy cows on the planet were a country, 
they would have more greenhouse gas emissions than the UK and EU combined. That's how, um, yeah, that's how, what a big impact that um, cows alone have on climate change. And that's because of methane. And, you know, mainstream media, you know, talks all the time about the, our need to move away from fossil fuels because burning them creates carbon dioxide and, and releases <laughs> that into our atmosphere. And then they talk about we need to uh, move away from um, gasoline and start driving mm -hmm. electric vehicles. But mainstream media never talks about the impact of um, our food, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, the, the science shows that methane, it's it, over the first 20 years, methane is 80 times more potent at trapping heat into our atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And over a hundred year period, it's 25 times more potent. So why is the mainstream media coming after methane? That's the low hanging fruit, you know, of our climate, yeah. of our climate problem. And, mm -hmm. you know, this past year in the United States, we passed the first piece of legislation aimed at uh, curbing emissions and, and fighting climate change. I'm really uh, proud that we were able to do that. Uh, and it's a long time coming. I mean, historically, the United States has contributed the most to greenhouse gas emissions. So I was really grateful that we passed our first piece of legislation, but it's just the beginning. We need to do a lot more. But I downloaded the act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and looked at the, um, the climate change component. And I did a search on methane. I did a search on meat. Uh, and it talks about methane, but it doesn't talk about methane generated from animal agriculture. And right. this is a big, this is a huge problem. Um, yeah. It has been estimated by Stephen Chu, who was, um, who's the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He's a Nobel Prize recipient, and he was former energy secretary of the United States. You know, he, he did a study and determined that 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from animal agriculture. And he's not alone. I mean, the World Bank Group, they had two lead environmental uh, um, scientists who did a study. This was back in 2009. They came to the same conclusion. And I have this in my book. So the science is there. But they're saying that, look, 51% of all man-made greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock. And so to mm -hmm. ignore yeah. this is, is going to be a huge problem. And we will never we will never be able to reach our climate goals without uh, widespread adoption of a plant-based lifestyle. There's just simply no way to do it because the matrix contributes so much to uh, climate change. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up your, your mom, Harmony, because you talked about breast cancer and, and not to say that, you know, one choice necessarily led to the other. But I, I remember when I was in my travels in, in Asia, um, mm -hmm. just how, uh, ridiculously small the percentages are for breast cancer compared mm -hmm. to North America and England and who have the bulk of the breast cancer cases in the world. And I was just mm -hmm. shocked and stunned by that because I just uh, grew up thinking, well, you know, that's just something that happens when you have breasts. It's not something that happens when you have, it's, 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 it's the addition of milk and cheese to your diet that creates mm -hmm. the very high st statistical anomaly that is breast cancer instead of, mm -hmm. and, but people normalize it and, and don't right. look at what ha what's happening around the rest of the world, say in Indonesia where nobody gets breast cancer, mm -hmm. you know, 
and I, and so it's, that's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's frustrating because it, like, those are things that you can really impact on your own daily basis with, with your own choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, I, I think about the health component of all this and that, um, you know, I've shown my book that in 2021, the top leading causes of death in the United States, I list them in my book. And then I show the science as to how a plant-based lifestyle helps us, uh, you know, avoid these leading causes of death, which are, mm-hmm. you know, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, uh, mm-hmm. uh, chronic kidney disease, diabetes. And, um, you know, it's, it leads to so much un- unnecessary suffering that we're eating the foods that uh, land us into a, a medical crisis like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I also think about the National Institute of Health. I uncovered this uh, memo that the National Institute of Health sent to all physicians in the United States. And it said that the physicians should recommend a plant-based lifestyle to all their patients, especially those with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. obesity. And that memo that was sent out to all doctors was in 2013. That was almost 10 years ago. I don't know about you all, but my doctors never asked me about the foods (laughs) I eat. No. No, if Not anything, once. my doctor's like, oh, we need to check your vitamin B and D <laughs> and iron values because yeah. you're vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, the National Institute of Health knows what would make us all healthier mm-hmm. and, and live longer lives, but physicians don't have that kind of training. And I talk about in my book why it is doctors won't talk to their patients about. The, the food that they're eating. Um, and I really like what, uh, there's a gastroenterologist named Dr. Will Bolshewitz. He wrote a book called Fiber Fueled. And I talk about what he says in his book, um, in my book. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, the average American eats three pounds of food a day. And over a year, that's roughly a thousand pounds of food. And over a lifetime, that's roughly 80,000 pounds of food. And there's no way that an isolated compound in a pharmaceutical or a nutritional supplement could overcome 80,000 pounds of a, of a bad diet. You know, it's right. foolish for us to think that, you know, that that could happen. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we keep popping pills and we keep going to the doctor and the pharmaceutical industry keeps creating these drugs to address problems without dealing with the root cause, which is the food we're eating. And the mm-hmm. problem is... You know, there's no way to monetize a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle into a pill. I mean, there are so there's so much money uh, right now, uh, Russell and uh, Harmony, being spent on um, lab-grown meat and yeah. plant-based meat alternatives, and I mean mm-hmm. billions of dollars. Um, and you know, and that's a very high-tech uh, approach mm-hmm. to solving a very solvable problem with a very low tech solution yeah. fruits and veggies and, and whole grains and yeah. seeds and nothing. Yeah. yeah you know all this money is being spent and companies are suing each other over intellectual property and i mean it's just right. it's crazy it, yeah. it is and and uh, i mean re- literally billions of dollars are being spent to try to solve this in a very high tech way when uh you know there's a, such a low tech solution mm. mm-hmm. What was it in 2008? Because it was 2008, wasn't it, that you went 
completely plant-based or what happened in 2008 that mm-hmm. sort of motivated yeah. you to change something? Well, um, in 2008, yeah, I did become plant-based uh, and have been since then. Uh, I really don't talk about this in my book because my editor was like, now, when did you become plant-based? How long have you been plant-based? There was all these questions and there was confusion. I was like, well, I better just make this real simple. So, you know, it's not confusing for people, but I became plant-based actually in 1985 and was plant-based for two years. Mm -hmm. And then I started traveling and Mm -hmm. I couldn't maintain a plant-based lifestyle traveling in the United States. It was just impossible. So I reluctantly became a vegetarian and ate uh, cheese and eggs and dairy products. And I was able, I maintained that until 2008. And that's when I realized, you know, it's easier now. I can do it. It takes effort, but I can make it happen and still maintain my health while traveling. And, you know, it's become easier and easier. I mean, it's never been as easy as it is now to become plant-based. There's so many options. I mean, you can get a, um, you know, an impossible Whopper at Burger King. And it may not be all (laughs) plant-based, you know, but it's, uh, you know, fast food um, has a lot of... uh, uh, plant-based uh, vegan offerings. They've responded now, so to the to the market, haven't they? Yeah, they have. You know, and it's because mm-hmm. the growth has not been steady. Uh, there's been an explosion of plant-based mm-hmm. eaters, uh, particularly in the United States and the the UK. Uh, yeah. Between 2015 and 2019, the number of people identifying as plant-based in the UK quadrupled. So it's wow. been and similar in the United States. So it's mm-hmm. it's a it hasn't been a steady growth. It's been uh, a, an explosion of people choosing to eat this way, um, mm-hmm. and it's it, you know I think it's going to only get more and more as more people discover you know how powerful it is for themselves yeah. and for the planet and for the animals. Yeah. Uh, it's just but, undeniable. Yeah, well, it's but, definitely a smart move on A and W's. We, you know, I hadn't eaten at a fast food restaurant for, gosh, I don't know, like decades. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when they came out with their Beyond Meat uh, burger, <laughs> that's uh-huh. become like a regular, a regular stop for our son, for sure. <laughs> nice. Things are definitely different. Like the number of times 30 years ago were, if I, if I uh, said something like, uh, Mais je suis végétarien. Je n'ai pas de le produit du lait. You know, I had to. I and then I was offered pork. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you are vegetarian, so you you must eat pork. And and like thousands of pounds of pork, I would pick out of my bibimbap in Korea every day. You know, trying to get a vegetarian meal. Like it's just not the same way anymore. Yeah. People are much more sensitive to it. I don't get called Monsieur Carotte anymore. <laughs> you know, Carrot. which is always very offensive. <laughs> but, um, I was going to say, you know, it has. We have seen an explosion of uh, people adopting a plant-based lifestyle mm-hmm. in in the United States and in Europe and in the UK. Uh, unfortunately, the matrix is growing enormously globally as mm-hmm. more and more people are demanding animal-based foods. They, they covet the, a Western lifestyle. And a Western lifestyle is associated with eating right. fast food, eating mm-hmm. hamburgers and fried chicken and all these mm-hmm. um, meat tricks 
uh, products, animal-based foods. And so when uh, countries like China and India have seen a huge growth in their middle class and affluence. And so right. people all over the world now are adopting this Western style eating pattern. And yeah, they, it's, they it's, identify it's, affluence with eating meat and you see that right. everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is very alarming uh, for everybody, <laughs> especially environmentalists and climate scientists yeah. and uh, people who are concerned with animal welfare. Um, the population is expected to grow by like 22% between now and 2050, but the demand for meat and dairy is supposed to increase by 60%. Mm. Wow. And we've already talked wow. about how we're, we're deforesting the earth in order to grow crops for these animals. And another reason why this is a problem is because six, over 60% 60 of all emerging infectious diseases have a wildlife origin. So when we're going in and chopping down the rainforest, we don't know what you know virus may be lurking in the in these pristine mm -hmm. areas that we've never never encountered, and we may have no immunity against. So mm -hmm. it just is we're playing Russian roulette with another pandemic by chopping down these um, areas so we can grow more plants for more animals. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another thing that you mentioned in, in your uh, here. That was so interesting to me was that this busting a more meat myths like like evolution, for example, mm -hmm. and you know that made a lot of sense to me. For example, when people said, "Oh yeah, you'll get colon cancer if you eat meat because our intestines are short," or excuse me, our intestines are quite long, and so the meat stays mm -hmm. in the intestines for a long time, unlike our dog or a cat whose right. intestines are quite short, so they get rid of the meat product very mm -hmm. quickly. But we Right. It, it it rots in our stomachs and then we get colon mm -hmm. cancer. Um, I, it, I hadn't done the math to equate the same thing with, with milk mm -hmm. and breast cancer, but I wonder if you could talk more about that, that evolution um, about uh, how it's sold to us that we're evolved to eat meat. People always point to their one little canine tooth out of 30 <laughs> every time. <laughs> like, you know, there are 29 other teeth, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I talk about this in my book. In fact, I have a, a chart <clears throat> that compares the uh, anatomy of a carnivore, an omnivore, and an herbivore in a human. And a human checks all the boxes of an herbivore every time. Uh, yet, you know, humans consider themselves as at least most people think of themselves as omnivores. And there are a growing mm -hmm. number of people who think of themselves as carnivores, you know, That's uh, right. paleo mm -hmm. diet people and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, my editor, when she was reading that part of my book, she was like, oh, that's really compelling. And, you know, <laughs> it is compelling, but it's it's something that I think most of us learned in grade school, you know, we we, but we've forgotten it, you know, yeah. we were taught, you know, we, we were taught these things, we compared, but uh, somewhere along the line, it just didn't register, register to us like, oh, yeah, what, you know, maybe we're getting sick because the food we're eating isn't the food that, you know, our bodies are, are, are you know, meant to be eating. Um, just looking at uh, the, you know, our saliva, that's where our digestion mm -hmm. begins with our saliva, a carnivore doesn't have any digestive enzymes in their in their saliva, um, and their canine teeth are so much larger, elongated. 
you know, that's for ripping flesh. Um, mm -hmm. They have claws for catching mm -hmm. prey. We don't have claws. We've invented weapons <laughs> so that we could do it. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, carnivores, you know, just rip uh, chunks of meat and swallow it whole because their gastric juices are so strong. That's where they digest the meat. Uh, mm -hmm. And if we did that, you know, we become deathly ill. <laughs> And their <laughs> digestive tract, like you said, Russell, is so much shorter because, you know, meat has to pass through their system much more quickly um, because it can rot and putrefy and, and create, right. you know, illnesses. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the, I think that the uh, anatomy component of this is very compelling. And so I included that in my book, too. So. Mm -hmm. well, and our teeth, um, you know, we have molars. That's for grinding, you know, plant material. You know, if you look at the, even our jaw structure, if you look at the mm -hmm. jaw structure of a carnivore, their jaw just moves up and down. It doesn't move side to side, but every herbivore, their jaw mm -hmm. is like ours. Mm -hmm. It moves side to side and up and down. And that's for grinding plant material. And another thing that I didn't put in my book, but you know, why do cats spend so much time laying down and sleeping? <laughs> well, if you look at their, if you look at their anatomy, um, it would be the equivalent of us when they stand, they're on their tiptoes. It would be like yeah. us. Every time we stood up, we would be on our tiptoes. Well, we would sit, <laughs> we would not stand for long. We would always find a place to sit down or lie down if we had to be on our tiptoes every time we stood up. Well, why are cats mm -hmm. on their tiptoes and dogs too? So they can catch yeah. prey more quickly. They're already ready, you know, and here we are, you know, flat footed. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we stand because we're, we're, we're you know, uh, herbivores that, you know, are picking fruits off of trees and things like that. So mm -hmm. I think that the the anatomy is, argument is very compelling, and I included that mm. in my book. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if you could also talk about some of the the other um, uh, medical consequences of of eating meat that that you mentioned, like say um, the effect of eating meat on the brain, or the effect of eating meat on the respiratory system, on the on the lungs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dairy. some of the things that I learned while researching my book just blew my mind. You know, I knew about heart disease and saturated fats, but the connection between uh, cognitive decline and Alzheimer's with mm. eating animal-based foods, that was something I didn't know anything about. And um, that really surprised me that there is such a strong connection there. You know, six to seven percent of Alzheimer's is late onset and it has like a genetic component. Mm -hmm. Most of the Alzheimer's that we have in this country does not have a genetic uh, component to it. And it's all uh, attributed to lifestyle. And so mm. the saturated fats that are found in animal-based foods, you know, it, does, it just doesn't clog the arteries feeding blood to our heart. Like you said, you saw Russell in that autopsy um, you know, the plaque that was in the arteries, you know, um, you know, that plaque is indiscriminate. It, it affects mm -hmm. the blood flow everywhere in our bodies. And that includes oh. the blood flow to our brain. And so yeah. and uh, so that affects our our cognition. Also, mm -hmm. animal based foods uh, are highly inflammatory. And and we know now that so much of cognitive decline is caused by inflammation in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have, when we eat uh, foods, we have the, our bodies metabolize the food we eat and the cre the, it creates advanced glycation endpoints or AGEs. And, um, I'm sorry, could you say that these, again? Advanced glycation points? 
endpoints, advanced okay. glycation endpoints, AGEs. And mm-hmm. these um, are oftentimes removed from our body, but our body also has receptors and stores AGEs. Um, mm-hmm. And so the foods that have the highest amount of these glycation endpoints are animal-based foods, you know, uh, dairy, butter, uh, meat, eggs. And so when we remove um, animal-based foods from our diet, we're reducing the, num- the number of AGEs in our diet drastically. And this mm-hmm. is also really helps us keep our inflammation down um, to, to lower levels. And, you know, so many of the chronic illnesses that we have in this country start with inflammation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made that almost every single one of them starts with inflammation. It's yeah, like a, yeah, I think that's what yeah, science is showing. Now. Critical. Mm-hmm. It's a and critical thing. That's why, um, yeah, and that's why antioxidants are so important. It's because they remove these mm-hmm. AGEs from our bodies. So you want to, we want to mm-hmm. be eating foods that are high in antioxidants. Mm-hmm. But we can also reduce the AGEs in our body also by eliminating the animal-based foods that are, is responsible for creating so many of the AGEs to begin with. So we get rid yeah. of the animal-based foods. We're lowering the AGEs. Then with our whole foods, plant-based lifestyle, we're eating higher numbers of antioxidants. We're removing even more of the AGEs that we get from. It's just a um, you know, we can reduce all AGEs in our bodies but we have to eat a raw food diet to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, not many people are going to eat a raw food diet. So uh, a plant-based lifestyle is, is, you know, is good at keeping the AGEs lower in our body. And then if we eat a lot of antioxidants, we can remove those AGEs and they won't get stored mm-hmm. in our tissues and we'll feel better. We'll have less inflammation, fewer aches and mm-hmm. pains. We'll feel better when we get up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. We'll think more clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. What um what would you say like cuz I think some people can wrap their head around, you know, becoming vegetarian but keeping the eggs and mm-hmm. the dairy in the diet I think is is pretty compelling for a lot of people. Um do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts or advice since you you um went fully plant-based what like any benefits you you've noticed or just like any tips or tricks to getting rid of those incredibly addictive dairy products? Because we're think we're we're gonna do a vegan <laughs> we're January. Do, yeah, Veganuary. Veganuary. So we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna be uh, saying goodbye to well, our they, dairy. <laughs> oh good. Good for you. Yeah, you know, it's never been easier to do it. I mean, there's so many just yeah. like there's um plant-based meat alternatives. There's so many more out yeah. there now. There's so many more plant-based uh, dairy alternatives out there now mm-hmm. um, than there were just even a few years ago. I mean, um, I don't know where you all live. Here in Kentucky, we have a lot of uh, Kroger uh, oh, uh, yeah, the grocery, grocery store. stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at Kroger's, they have their own line of food products. And Kroger oh, makes cool. a, a plant-based sour cream. They make mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. vegan cheese. They make mm-hmm. plant-based, you know, they milk. I mean, uh, so it's just never been easier. And I think, you know, you'll find it um, really easy to give up uh, your dairy. But I have to say that, you know, that was one of the hardest things. Um, I think because it is so addictive. um, Yeah, it's so addictive. After I became plant-based, yeah, after I became plant-based, I still craved a a pizza, a cheese pizza for a while. But, you know, I don't even think about 
I mean, and that cravings totally disappeared. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't linger for long, but, you know, for a while I would notice, oh, I would really love a pizza about now. Well, the good news is you can go to Kroger's and buy a plant-based pizza in the freezer that has vegan cheese on it. And, yeah. you know, uh, and I think it'll yeah. blow your mind because this isn't like vegan cheese uh, from years ago. It's um, they've yeah, made like the just like you can get. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you can uh, you have these plant-based meat alternatives that are so much, quote, meatier. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you know black bean burgers were back in the That's day. The same was with yeah. uh, the same same with cheese. Yeah. It's really coming. Yeah, we actually way. have some some pizza parlors here, like our our one down on Center Street. That uh, they you can just even order a plant based cheese. Mm-hmm. You can do gluten free and you can do plant based yeah. cheese. So they do even make it right from the but, pizza place. But to be honest, <laughs> when I was from the age of 16 to 27, when I was vegan and sometimes raw food, um, mm-hmm. I would mostly, I would, except for rice, I kind of gave myself that indulgence. I would eat cooked rice, but I was, I was raw foodist every, in every other way. Nice. I, I'd never really thought about cravings for cheese or milk. I didn't think about any of those things. You know, I had my hmm. own, I had my own wheatgrass uh, farm in my house <laughs> that I grew wheatgrass and I'd, cool. I'd chop mm. my own wheatgrass um, and grind it and drink right. that. Um, I didn't really think about it. I just kind of settled into, um, I guess really what I settled into was a kind of a Korean based uh, a diet, which is, you know, mm-hmm. miso soup, rice, and barbecue sauce. Right. And, and that's just what I, <laughs> there's a lot of, a lot of sugar in that, in, in that rice and barbecue sauce. But, um, the, um, I did, I, I I'm hard pressed to feel like I had a, a craving until I went mm-hmm. to Korea and then it was just, India, you mean India, excuse me. And so I went mm-hmm. to India. Yeah. Well, but, it's like once you eat the yeah. dairy, it, it creates that craving i think because it has those opiates in it yeah the opiates now opiates are something i can really get behind (laughs) i do like those maybe just replace your cheese with heroin and the problem solved i think in kentucky people really like opiates and opioids don't they there's a big Uh, people really have a taste for unfortunately we've been the victim of the opioid epidemic yeah yeah destroyed a lot of lives in eastern kentucky so yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the dairy is is something that um, it is very high, highly addictive. And I think it's because of the, the dopamine that was released yeah. in our brains when we eat That's you know, right. foods that are high in sodium and fat or high in sugar and fat, you know, have this mm-hmm. um, effect of uh, releasing dopamine, which makes us feel yeah. good, you know, so, yeah. you know, until we don't, <laughs> until That's we right. don't. And, you know, yeah. And I wanted to mention, Russell, you were talking about how you ate uh, when you were in Korea. Um, You know, we talk about people being lactose intolerant. And I kind of wanted to talk about this because this goes back to us thinking that eating animal-based foods is natural. Mm -hmm. 75% 75 of the people on the planet are lactose intolerant. They are the, the vast majority of people mm-hmm. who, you know, cannot um, digest um, milk products. Yet in the mm-hmm. United States, we consider people who can't digest milk as <laughs> lactose intolerant. 
That's and right. so we make we make them, you know, we make them like they're, they're the, the others. Other. And yeah. We're the majority, but in in the in a global perspective, seventy five percent of the people can't digest milk. So, how can you say eating dairy products is natural? Mm-hmm. You know no. what the term yeah. that I like is that the people who can digest milk and dairy, they're uh, lactose persistent. They're people who have a mutation. Yeah, they have a mutation that allows them to digest the sugars in milk after infancy. So we all have these enzymes when we're babies because we're, you know, milk. drinking breast milk. Mm-hmm. We, need, we need to be able to do that. But once we are weaned from our mother's milk, we lose that ability to digest milk. 75% of the people on the planet can't do it. So the people who can, as an adult, my father-in-law, he drinks, he's 92, and he drinks a glass of milk like every day. And um, and he has no problem doing it. But, you know, he's lactose persistent. <laughs> and we have a joke with my father-in-law. He laughs about it, but we say we call his milk, uh, and he laughs. We call it bovine titty juice. So. <laughs> <laughs> bovine titty juice brought to you by the milk industry. You know, that's <laughs> I think it. I think it speaks to the the unnaturalness of it when you think about how that evolved in Caucasian people, because it is the Caucasians who have the enzyme on the yeah. whole to digest um, milk, produit du lait. And it's so interesting because what's unnatural about that is that if you shove millions of Europeans together into tiny little ghetto cities, mm-hmm. and they start, mm-hmm. you know, sharing. Uh, diseases with each other and th- and then you get a black plague and the only way that you can survive is is to drink milk because the water is so filthy mm-hmm. then the only people who are going to live are the people who have that that uh, capacity to drink right. milk that's an incredibly mm-hmm. unnatural way to develop the ability to eat cheese it is not <laughs> I don't That's recommend not it. as God intended. <laughs> Your yeah, water's yeah. filthy. You're shoved into each other, and everyone's eating rat feces. That is not how God intended you. <laughs> but here we are. Well, here it's we been are. so yeah. wonderful to talk about this. It's one of our favorite topics. Actually, we talk about it. All the time <laughs> in our house. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm glad uh, that you do. I think we need to have more conversations about this. As I said, you know, our media doesn't talk about it. So maybe, you know, as f- friends and family, we can start these discussions on podcasts mm-hmm. like this uh, mm-hmm. so that we can start, you know, making choices that I think are better for everybody. You know, it's a win, mm-hmm. win, win for ourselves, the planet and the animals. So I yeah. appreciate you uh, having me on your your podcast. It's been great meeting you and and, and discussing um, the impact of our food choices in my book. And if people want to find me, they can find yeah. me Please. at my website. Yeah, stuartwaldner.com. Um, they can find my book, Escape the Matrix, Eat Plants, Feel Great, and Save the Planet. Uh, on Amazon, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. So I hope people will right. uh, connect yeah. with me there. And uh, yeah, 
We'll link it all in the show notes too, so they can all right, find cool. all, find you in all the places. <laughs> okay, appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Stuart. Yeah. It was a real pleasure to meet you today. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure meeting you all. Too. Thanks, Russell. I can't wait to Thanks dig into your book. It's going to inspire me in my veganuary. Just before you run off, I want to make sure you know you still have chance to practice with me coming up this Saturday, January seventh. I will be leading a primary class with a little bit of the intermediate series added on. And then we'll have time after our practice for a little bit of breathing, meditation, and then awakening your spiritual vision for 2023. So I hope you'll join me this Saturday, January 7th. You can find the details in the show notes or online. If you head over to my website, harmonyslater.com, you'll find all the details for my Awakening Your Spiritual Vision for 2023 workshop, which includes a full practice as well as some of these other very important yogic practices that will help to catapult your practice in 2023. I would love for you to join me in some dreaming, some visualizing, some goal setting, how to put together a plan at least to get you going on 2023 with some clarity, confidence, and some great tips to help you stay focused and motivated throughout the year. So I'm super excited to be offering this workshop again this year and I hope that you will sign up and come practice with thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me your host harmony slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com and I look forward to connecting with you again soon Standing in